kgp.net. Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859, or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. It's always great to be here, and we're always privileged to take questions that you may have as you've been studying God's Word. And if you have a specific question that you'd like to address this morning, you can call us again locally at 525-1859. For our Internet listeners, we have a toll-free number, and that number is 877-WAGP-980. Or people often email us here directly into the studio, and you can do so as well here at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at net. However you'd like to uh, contact us, when you call, you can dictate your question or go on the air live, however you're most comfortable in giving it. So, Rick, it's good to be here this morning, and I know we have a number of questions already that have come in, so let's get started. We do indeed, Pastor, and uh, we've got Ryan from Worcester. That's Worcester. The, that, that's the way you pronounce it. That's Worcester, right. Mass. In uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, he writes, When Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God, is Paul only referring to the Old Testament because the complete New Testament had not yet been penned? Although he writes, I believe the New Testament is inspired and divine. How exactly does this verse apply? Well, it is a great question. And really, when you think about it, this is Paul's last will and testament. So he is uh, writing right at the end of his life, Uh, shortly before he dies, and he's beheaded there in the city of Rome. Uh, So when he makes the statement, all Scripture is inspired by God, I don't think by any stretch that he is referring simply to the Old Testament. He could have easily have made the same statement as it relates to all the New Testament books that had been written. In fact, uh, Paul knew that he was writing Scripture. Peter echoes that truth in his letter that the uh, some people distort the scriptures to the own, their own destruction. And it's in that context that he says, listen, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, the scripture that he writes. And so P- Peter equates Paul's words with scripture, and Paul knows he's writing the word of God. And so if you stop and think for a moment, the gospels had all been completed. Uh, the first three letters of John, Jude, had been completed. Uh, the Petrine epistles, uh, every letter of Paul had been completed. Probably the only book that had not been written when Paul makes the statement in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 is the book of Revelation. Uh, Even those who take the early, early date for Revelation, 69 uh, AD, which most don't take, but some have uh, due to a statement by Papias that Uh, John died before the destruction of Jerusalem, which we know took place in 70 A.D. 
Uh, most would put Revelation at 98 or 96. Even that's the last book. So in either case, every book of the New Testament had been written with the exception of the Revelation. So um, certainly Paul's not restricting the statement to the Old Testament. I think it encompasses everything that is Scripture. I mean, that's what it says. All Scripture is given by the breath of God. It's inspired by God. Good question. Let's go to our next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-WAGP980, or email us at tbl at net. Paula from Portland, Maine, writes, I so enjoy your search the Scripture message a few weeks ago and agree especially about people claiming to go to heaven and back uh, out-of-body experiences. I know the Bible says it is appointed once to die. However, what about miracles? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and others. People do raise people from the dead today. How does that work in with what you said? I'm not being wise. I just was wondering this myself because, as I said, I agree with what you said. I know you're not being a wise person, a wise guy or a wise gal, I guess, in this case, and you're asking out a sincere heart, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, certainly, I was dealing with uh, the subject of those who said they died and went to heaven and then came back again, and I don't think that happens because, indeed, the Scripture is very clear. It is appointed for a person to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Every once in a while, I'll meet people say, well, you know, I died three times and on the operating table. Well, you, you didn't really die. Your heart may have stopped beating, but true death didn't take place. Um, the Bible says in James chapter 2, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And so when a person really, truly dies, the spirit leaves the human body and goes home to be with the Lord, or for some people goes to Hades, uh, the the resting place of lost people. Uh, so it's appointed for one to die once. I think sometimes though people have oxygen deprivation or uh, they may, um, you know, under anesthesia feel like they died or had an experience that they relate. Maybe it happened before their heart literally stopped beating. But that's not death. That's not true death. And what's amazing to me is all the people I've met over the years who have claimed these out-of-body experiences, and most of them are really good. You know, like, I saw this great light, and, and God told me everything was really fine. Well, you know, if you died, well, why do you think God's going to let you into heaven? Well, I've been a good person. I think, you know, I've tried my best. And and that's why I saw this glorious bright light. And, and God told me everything was fine. Well, that wasn't God speaking to you. I can promise you that because that would contradict his revelation. So when you question sometimes uh, what people call supernatural experiences, they assume you write off all the supernatural. And, of course, that's not the case. So the second half of the question here from Maine is, what about miracles? Well, miracles have not always been normative throughout biblical history. It's really only been at the great ganglions of biblical history that God has done the miraculous. Um, I mean, if you think about it, the first one to do a miracle in the Bible is Moses. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, none of the patriarchs ever did a miracle. The first one to do a miracle was Moses. And, of course, he, uh, in essence, passed the baton to uh, uh, Joshua, who led the people into the promised land. And after he was dead, the miracles ceased. They stopped. That was it. And so centuries went by, and no one did miracles in Israel until the prophets Elijah and Elisha come along. 
And they, for a short period of time, because again, it's a, it's another critical point in human history and spiritual history. And God decides to do miracles once again. So you have the initial emancipating miracles with Joshua and and Moses. And then you have these educational miracles that come through Elijah and Elisha to call the people to repentance, to worship the one true God. And then you have what I call evidential miracles. That is those miracles that affirm that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And so his apostles who represented him and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years go by in maybe millennia. God alone knows at least two millennia have gone by because after the apostles, the miracles of the New Testament ceased. We do know in a future eschatological framework in the last of the last days, just before the second coming of Christ in a seven year period known as the Great Tribulation, there will be two witnesses who will do miracles once again. So there's the emancipating miracles of Moses and Joshua. Hundreds of years go by, the educational miracles of Elijah and Elisha. Hundreds of hundreds of years go by, there's the evidential miracles of Jesus and the apostles. And then at least two millennia has gone by, and there will be the eschatological miracles of the two witnesses. So my point is, is that miracles have never been normative throughout biblical history. It's only been at the great points of human history that that God has done the miracles that he has done. That doesn't mean that God can't do miracles today. He can. The question is, does he do them through individuals? Uh, Certainly the three men... Daniel's three friends had miracles done to them. They didn't do a miracle, but they had miracles done to them. Daniel had a miracle done in his presence where an angel of God came and shut the mouth of lions. But that's different from an individual doing miracles. And, you know, I'm sure some people listening feel like they had a a miracle done of sorts uh, for them. Of course, uh, we loosely define the word miracle today. Truly, a miracle defies the natural laws or the God-given laws, we might say, that God has written into the universe. Uh, We hold a newborn baby and we say, well, what a miracle. Well, I suppose, loosely, that baby is a miracle, but it's really a product of the laws of creation that God wrote into it. A miracle is when you defy the laws of creation. When the law of gravity is defied and the uh, water in the sea becomes like walls on either side, and then God sends a wind and dries the seabed so the children of Israel can cross the Red Sea. Uh, that's, a, that's a miracle of sorts. What about those being raised from the dead today? I don't, I don't think there are folks being raised from the dead today. Uh, I don't think, I think that was a miracle. Those were kinds of miracles that were unique to the prophets and Christ and the apostles. Uh, So there are people who today say, well, I raised someone from the dead. That's a lot of nonsense. In fact, uh, everyone I've ever heard, everyone, now maybe there's an exception, but everyone I've ever heard who's made such a claim has been a wacko person in terms of their theology. You just uh, forget the miracles that they say they're doing. Just pull back the veneer and find out what they believe about Jesus, about salvation, about grace, about the cross and other critical, critical things, and you find out they're way off. So you ought to be suspect. And remember, too, the devil can do miracles, as Matthew 24 teaches. They're false wonders, false miracles. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Good morning. Thanks for calling today. Um, Pastor, I was walking in my neighborhood yesterday doing an evening exercise walk, and 
I ran into a couple of Mormon missionaries, and chatted with them for a while and shared the gospel with them. But there was one thing I was pondering um, after that conversation. Uh, I'm sure you know that they believe their church is legit because they have 12, you know, warm-blooded apostles. And um, I was wondering when, when Matthias replaced Judas, why was it necessary, you know, to, to have a number 12? Why couldn't they have continued with 11? And I'll just hang up and listen. Great question. Uh, one is because of a promise that the Lord Jesus made in the Gospels, where he said the apostles would judge the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. So you need 12 apostles who are going to be involved in that process. And, of course, Judas was not really a true apostle. He was a false apostle of sorts, and God knew that from the start. He knew it from the beginning, that he was the son of perdition. He wasn't a puppet. He wasn't being pulled along by God on strings. Uh, Certainly, God used his disobedience and his rebellion to bring about the crucifixion of Christ and our redemption but still, he was a free moral agent, uh, operating, of course, though under the sovereignty of God. But there was a necessity of 12, because God speaks of 12 thrones and the 12 apostles who will stand on them. Um, Paul won't. He's in a different category of apostle. Um, how many apostles there are, people debate the number anywhere from 13 to 15. But we know this, that the Mormon missionaries who came to your door who said there are 12 living apostles are definitely wrong. Uh, Because to be an apostle, according to the passage you referenced in Acts 1, according to 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Corinthians 12, we know three things. One, you had to have been personally selected by Christ. Now, they may claim that. Oh, yeah, we're God's selected apostles. Two, you had to have seen the resurrected Lord. None of them can claim that. And if they say they've seen the resurrected Lord, they're liars. Third, if you were a true apostle, you had to do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only a true apostle can do. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 12.12. Paul argues when he defends his apostleship, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. I made a statement on Sunday about Mormons, and of course I prefaced it by saying, I don't have anything against Mormons personally. Uh, You know, I know some wonderful Mormon people, some I like better than some Christians I know. So I'm not against Mormons, uh, but I am against people who lead folks to hell. And they're not Christians, contrary to what Joel Olstein came out and said this past week. Uh, And I didn't know he had said it. I think he may have said it on Sunday uh, in an interview. I don't know if he, um, when he said it, but it's all over YouTube right now and circulating amongst uh, evangelical Christians. Someone sent it to me yesterday, the first time I saw it. And I said, I'm glad I said what I said on Sunday. Because Mormons uh, defy and deny every major doctrine that's taught in the Bible. Uh, They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. I know they use the term son of God, but they use it differently. They don't mean God the son. They mean son of God like we can all be sons and daughters of God. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They deny the deity of Christ. They deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that his death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to pay our sin debt. And so now it's a works righteousness where man through human effort helps achieves his own salvation. 
uh, they deny the virgin birth as it's recorded in Scripture. And so God the Father took on a human physical body, had a sexual intercourse with the Virgin Mary, and so Jesus came into being. Um, so they deny his eternality. They deny his uh, supernatural conception, not to begin life, but to take on humanity and have it inseparably combined with his deity. They deny that. Uh, they come up with all kinds of things. You know, I tell people, I said, either the Book of Mormon is true or the Bible is true. They can't both be true. Alma chapter 7. Remember the Book of Mormon, it's like we have the Bible and we have 66 books in it. Well, the Book of Mormon, if I recall, there's 17 books in it. In Alma 7, it says Jesus was born in Jerusalem. What does the Bible say? Well, the New Testament records that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And the prophet Micah said, Messiah, Micah 6, his comings would be from eternity past and that he would come from Bethlehem. Well, which is it? Is Was he born in Jerusalem or was he born in Bethlehem? Well, the Bible is real clear. So either the Book of Mormon is true or the Bible is true. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, the Book of Mormon says uh, that darkness encompassed the world for three days. The Bible says for three hours, which is true. I I could go on and list contradiction after contradiction. And, of course, when push comes to shove, that's what Mormons say. They say, well, the Bible's been corrupted. Only the Book of Mormon can be trusted. And so that's the question people have to ask and answer for themselves. One, is Jesus God? And number two, is the Bible the Word of God? Those are two critical, non-negotiable questions you must ask and answer. And the Book of Mormon is a gross falsehood, and they're propagating uh, a different way of salvation. So when Joel Olstein is interviewed on national television, I think it was a CNN interview, and he's uh, asked, well, is Mitt Romney a Christian being a Mormon? He says, well, he, he says Jesus is his personal Savior, and that's good enough for me. Well, listen, um, good night. He's either incredibly naive or uh, a downright false prophet. Um, how can you say that just because they use the same terminology that they mean the same thing? Every Mormon missionary, when they show up at your door, say, will say, well, we have Jesus as our Savior. But again, same words, but different meanings to every word. Uh, Mitt Romney is not a believer. He is a nice guy, I'm sure, probably a very credible businessman, uh, worked as the CFO for one uh, section of a great organization that one of my sons worked for for a time called Bain. Um, listen, but he's not a believer. I hope he will become a believer, uh, but his holy Mormon underwear won't get him to heaven. He's got to repent and believe on Jesus as Lord. And these are critical issues. Great question. Let's go to our next one. Okay, actually, this is kind of a related question from a different person. This one would like to know, are there apostles today? No, for three reasons. Again, because one, you had to have seen the risen Christ. You had to have been personally selected by Christ because some had seen the risen Christ. Uh, He appeared to 500 at one time, but there weren't 500 apostles. You had to have been personally selected by him. And third, you, if you were a true apostle and you had seen him and had been selected by him, then the Bible teaches that you would have the accreditation that you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles. So Matthias saw the risen Lord. 
he, like Acts 1 teaches, was from the beginning uh, of Christ's public ministry. He was selected slightly differently through lots, but his apostleship came with the same confirmation that every true apostle came with, the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So, no, there are no apostles today. But there is the office of apostle. Yes, and there, well, there is the office of apostle, but um, which is no longer here, but there is the gift of apostleship, right, that is different from the office of apostleship. And it's the same word, apostolos, and context determines it. It's like the word diaconus, deacon. Are we talking about the office of deacon or just someone who serves? Jesus said, he that would be great among you must be the deacon or diaconus, servant, we say in the English Bible of all. Most languages don't have two words. Uh, They have one word. Uh, so they immediately know. Well, obviously, First Timothy 3 is speaking of a specific kind of servant because there's qualifications you have to meet in order to serve in this office um, versus a general use of the word that is true of every Christian, that we're all called to be deacons or servants, so to speak. And so when you think of the office of apostle, it's unique. It's given to a select few chosen by Christ. The gift of apostleship, uh, Epaphroditus is a called an apostle law. So he's a messenger of the church. That is different. The gift is different from the office. Great question. Let's go to our next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thank um, you. I appreciated Sunday uh, when you would explain... Um, in the Bible where it says 70 persons came to Egypt, and then also it said 75, and the reason behind that, um, how it wasn't a mistake. Um, my question is, in um, Samuel and Chronicles, there are other numbers that don't match up, like David's fighting men and things like that. Would that be explained the same way, or are those... They are. No, they're explained the same way. I did a course last year... We spent 51 Wednesday nights. They weren't 51 consecutive Wednesday nights because every once in a while I would be gone speaking somewhere, maybe away on vacation a couple Wednesdays a year, or I'd have a guest speaker in or a missionary report. But there's 51 consecutive weeks on a course we did called Bibliology. And um, it's part of our Institute of Biblical Studies where people want to get what's uh, an equivalent of a a one-year seminary degree. And it's taught really on a master's level. And some take it on Wednesday nights when we offer these courses just for their own personal edification. Some take it for credit in the Institute, and they write the papers and other readings that are required to go with it. There's a section of the course. There's six sections to it. One of the sections deals with inerrancy of the Scriptures. And in the section on inerrancy, I go through virtually every passage, and most of them are found in the Chronicles and the Kings and First and Second Samuel especially, but that's where the majority are. But I go through virtually every passage in the Bible that people use to say, here's a contradiction. How is it that it speaks over here of 4,000 horses and over here 40,000 horses? And, you know, how do you put these numbers together? And I walk through all of the so-called alleged contradictions in the Bible. There are none. With each and every one, there is a clear explanation. So you might, if you're really interested in studying these kinds of issues, uh, just get the notes uh, through Community Bible Church on that section of the course that deals with biblical inerrancy. 
how we know the Bible is without error. Because there are many skeptics and many critics of the Bible who will throw up, well, look what this says over here and look what it says over here, a direct, blatant contradiction. There is always an explanation. Uh, It may not always be initially apparent, but to those of us who have studied it hard and people who through the centuries have examined the scriptures, I've yet ever to see a contradiction or a mistake in the Bible because there's none. All right, very good. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next uh, caller would like you to explain Exodus 4.24. Why was God angry with Moses? Was it because he had not circumcised his sons? And why did he seek to kill him in the middle of his instructions to the Israelites? Well, Moses had failed to circumcise one of his sons in Midian, and uh, Zipporah's, um, you know, act was an act of uh, redemption by which the blood of the boy restored Moses to the Lord and, and saved their marriage. And and so he becomes, quote unquote, a new bridegroom, as Exodus 3 teaches in, or Exodus 424 teaches. So, yeah, he, he should have known better and um, took a little bit lightly. Uh, a command that God had given him, and, you know, to whom much is given, much is expected. To him who knows to do right and does it not, to him it is sin. And God had clearly specified in the Abrahamic covenant after the first generation of men had been circumcised that after that every Hebrew boy in the eighth day was to be circumcised. So, yes, um, this was important. And I have preached a sermon, if someone really wants to study this on depth, where I walk through the major passages in the Bible on circumcision. It's in my series in Philippians. And I deal with this subject of circumcision and its significance because it really becomes a a picture of the ultimate blood sacrifice um, that will be found in Jesus Christ. There's a reason why God had the Jewish people do this. So they might want to get that message. But yeah, God was upset with him because he had failed to obey what he knew he should have done. All right. A listener was having a discussion with someone, and that person was using Matthew 20, verses 1 to 6, to say that we will all have the same rewards in heaven. Could you explain what this passage is saying so she can explain this to her friend? Um, well, I, I don't think it's a parable so much on rewards as it is a parable on right attitude. Uh, a, a complaining servant versus someone who has a good attitude. But let let me just read it to you. It says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarii for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You too, go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And it He went about the sixth and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, and they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, 
These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first. Uh, thus the, the, the last shall be first and the first last. So I, I think primarily it's an issue of attitude uh, versus reward. But I do think there is a message here about rewards. There are some people who step into the work of the kingdom late in life, but they are just as faithful in the time that they are have. You know, maybe for whatever reason, it took longer for them to hear the gospel, not that they were resistant, but in God's sovereignty and in God's providence, they heard it late at life. But they work faithfully and they work uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit. And in essence, they are able to be equally rewarded. But I don't think that's the major point of the parable. And the fact that we're all rewarded equally, well, you could easily discount that through scores of passages in the Bible that teach on the doctrine of rewards. I have a whole message on this in our Back to Basics series. It's called Developing an Eternal Perspective. And the Lord Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Uh, he exhorts his people to lay up heavenly treasure. He's not talking about earning salvation. And as you read through the scripture, it becomes apparent that there is a clear distinction between treasure that is earned and uh, salvation that is received. Uh, Salvation is always spoken of with a present tense. He that believes has life. Um, Repeatedly, the present tense is huge, where rewards are always spoken of as a, a future possession. Paul says, I've fought the fight. I've finished the course. In the future, there was laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Salvation is always spoken of as a free gift. It's not something you earn. It's not of works, lest any man boast. Your faith has saved you, Jesus said to one woman. Uh, Whereas rewards are spoken of something that is earned. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust so as to, you know, forget your labor in the service that you've done towards his people. Uh, It's something that is earned. And so when you keep that in mind, it becomes clear that there are differences in heaven for believers. First Corinthians 3, he's dealing with leaders in the church and those who use good tools versus bad tools. The good tool, of course, is the Word of God versus human methodologies to build God's church. And in the end, God can compare our work and our service to wood, hay, stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stone. So he warns that no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And he says, if anyone builds upon that foundation, in fact, let me just turn there because I'm kind of quoting this out of memory and I don't want to misquote it here. Um, He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man, each person, it's anthropos, meaning men or women, be careful how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. 
And of course, Paul laid that foundation. He came and preached the gospel to the Corinthian church, and they were one to Christ. And other folks came in after him, people like Apollos and so on, and and they had become a divided church. Some were followers of Cephas, some were followers of Apollos, some were followers of Paul. And he argues earlier in the first chapter, Christ hasn't been divided. You know, why are you divided? So he, he warns, he says, if anyone builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. How so? Well, um, he makes it very clear here, the kind of material you use will determine the kind of reward you will get in the end. For he says the day will show it because, he argues, it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. God's not interested simply in how much you've done, though certainly time is a factor. People who serve God faithfully year after year, month after month, are potentially going to store up more reward in heaven than someone who doesn't. But God's also interested in quality. He will highlight that in chapter 4 and verse 5 when he warns us not to go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. God looks at motive. He looks at why you did what you did, how you did what you did. Did you do it in your own resources or did you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit? And really the broader context, he's contrasting a spiritual man with a carnal man, one who lives in the power and energy in the enablement of God, the Holy Spirit, and one who lives under his own power. And there are implications in heaven. So he's contrasting now in verses 14 and 15 here, 1 Corinthians 3, the wise builder with the worldly builder, and ultimately the wicked builder in verse 17. He said, if any man's work, which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. So in heaven, when God examines all your work, which again can be constituted in two types, gold, silver, precious stone, or a second type, wood, hay, and stubble. And when fire is put to it, one is consumed, the other is purified. I mean, what would you rather have, a a truckload of hay or a handful of diamonds? I'd rather have a handful of diamonds at the judgment seat of Christ when tested with fire. And some works look big and impressive, but they're not to God because he's going to someday examine the quality of what we've done. And so having uh, affirmed the wise builder, now he looks at the worldly builder. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is through fire. He's going to suffer loss. What's the loss? Not a loss of salvation, because he himself shall be saved. By the way, this has nothing to do with purgatory, as our Roman Catholic friends argue. This is one of the verses they use for purgatory. Well, you know, you you don't live well enough in this life as a Catholic, and so you go to purgatory in the flames of purgatory for a period of time of suffering, and then hopefully you'll be snatched out. Listen, it's not the people who are in the fire. It's the works that are in the fire. And so he says, if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Suppose you build a big, glorious, wonderful house, and in it you use the finest materials, solid oak floors, diamond-studded chandeliers, 
gold-plated ornaments all the way through the house. I mean, everything you own, everything you live for is put into this house. And one day you wake up and you begin to cough and choke on the smoke and you, you wake up and you discover the house is on fire and you shake your wife and say, I'm, I'm going to get the kids. And you run down the hall and you, you try to get to the kids, but you can't because the flames have already engulfed their rooms and, and you run back to get your wife and now you can't get her and she's engulfed in flames and all you can do is jump out the window to save your own hide. You wouldn't get up and brush yourself off and say, well, praise the Lord, I'm saved. Hallelujah. No, you would be saved, yet so is through fire. You would be saved but singed. You would be saved, and in the process, you would suffer loss. And the judgment seat of Christ is a very serious thing. You know, you have some Christians who are saved by the grace of God, but they're rather lackadaisical when it comes to their service and their investment in the kingdom. And they go home night after night and they vegetate in front of the television and their mind goes mush and they don't have time to read the Holy Scripture and have their thinking renewed and get into God's Word or serve God's people. And some show up at church on Sunday, but they've never served anywhere and they have no intention to to serve. And if you ask them to serve, they'll feel rather flustered. You think it makes a difference, assuming both are truly saved, the guy who faithfully works and ministers to the people of God and the person who doesn't? Of course it makes a difference. It will make a difference in eternity. So there's a wise builder. There's the worldly builder, so to speak, uses the wrong kind of material. And then there's the wicked builder. Do you not know that you, plural, are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you, you, plural, though it's true singularly as well as 1 Corinthians 6 indicates. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And so now he deals with wicked, false teachers who come in who try to destroy God's temple, try to decimate God's church with a different message. And God says, well, there's an end for him. The end is the eternal judgment of God. It's absolutely disastrous. Now, we take this verse sometimes out of context, and uh, we, we apply it to physical health, and there are certainly other passages that teach that, but not this verse. This verse is talking about people who go in and try to destroy God's church with false teaching. They're false prophets, and they are tearing down the work of God, and they will be met out someday with the eternal judgment of God. Well, while you're on that subject, uh, I moved this next question up a little bit in our order since it kind of touches on it, and you might want to add to what you just said. Uh, this person writes, the Bible tells us that God will wipe away our tears in heaven. Will there be tears at the Bema? And is the judgment for deeds for the saved, the unsaved, or both? Well, it's a good question. You know, the scripture says that God will judge every man according to his deeds. It's true of the saved, and it's true of the lost. Uh, at the great white throne judgment, and the only people who are present there in Revelation twenty eleven to 15, if you read the whole chapter very carefully, are lost people, people who are not a part of the first resurrection program. The first resurrection program begins with the one who first came out of the grave, followed by that handful, followed by the rapture, followed by the tribulation saints, followed by the millennial saints. They're all part of the first resurrection program. But those who are part of the second resurrection meet only the second death, eternal judgment, 
eternal judgment away from the presence of God. In their deeds, every one of them, it says, is judged according to his deeds. Their deeds show, one, that they didn't have a true faith, but two, somehow in the perfect sovereignty of God. Though hell is described as an awful place for anyone who goes there, there is somehow in the perfect justice of God degrees of punishment. Now, that's not to say hell is wonderful for anyone. It's awful for anyone. When Jesus describes it in general terms, he says the fire is not quenched. The worm never dies. It's an awful place, but somehow it may be worse for Hitler than for other people. And so Paul can speak of in Romans 2 about people who are storing up. Literally, the Greek says they're treasuring up wrath for the day of wrath. Because uh, in that context, all these people who'd been given so much revelation, so much privilege, and they ignored it, they were going to meet God in an awful, awful judgment. For some people, the worst judgment will be for those who die and go to hell from the church pew because they've heard sermon after sermon, truth after truth, and they've ignored the holy revelation of God. And that's why Jesus said, listen, Capernaum, beside it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. Now, was it good for Sodom and Gomorrah? It was awful. But somehow in the perfect justice of God, hell will be fitted according to a man's works. He's in hell because of his unbelief, but somehow judgment will be meted out according to his works. Just like heaven's a wonderful place for anyone who goes there. But somehow it will be different for different people. And yeah, I think in heaven, God will wipe away our tears. That's what the revelation says. And it seems like the time to do that would be at the judgment seat, at the Bama seat of Christ, the reward seat of Christ when rewards are met out. All right, very good. Our next caller would like to know, how do you explain God to a four-year-old? He knows Jesus is God and was man and that God the Father was not a man. How do you explain all this so he can comprehend God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit at his age? Well, step at a time, piece at a time, and, uh, you know, I was speaking last night to my five-year-old grandson, and I was listening to him pray last night, and he said, Father, thank you that Jesus came, and he took the punishment that I deserved, and, I mean, it was like a perfect prayer in terms of the five, he just turned five, you know, really articulating the substitutionary death of Christ. He wouldn't have used that word. He doesn't know what the word substitute means, but Jack could articulate in his prayer that Jesus had left heaven and come to earth and came to earth to take the punishment that we deserve. So uh, you, you take it a step at a time. Don't underestimate what children can learn, but you explain it a piece at a time as the questions come. And, you know, you explain, well, God is one, and, and yet he has shown and revealed himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so you explain how, well, God says that man must die for sin. And so no angel could die for sin. And God, who is spirit, he couldn't die. So God has to become a man. And so God takes on human flesh. And God pays the penalty himself in Christ. And so you take it a step at a time and a piece at a time and do the best you can. Ask for wisdom Read your kids the scriptures, the the, the uh, children's Bible I suggested on Sunday, if you heard the sermon, was the one that's put out by David C. Cook Publications. It's called the Picture Bible. Now, understand there's a lot of children's Bibles under that title, the Picture Bible, but the one by David C. Cook 
in my opinion, is the most accurate, most precise one that's available for children today. And that would be a great one to be reading that four or five-year-old and and let them ask questions, and you'll be surprised how much they'll get. All right. Uh, our next listener would like you to explain something. In Genesis thirty-five ten, God renames Jacob Israel. He says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Israel, or no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Why do we continue to see both names used? Well, it's a, it's a good question, fair question. And uh, the Yisrael is the covenant name that God gave to Jacob because he wants to affirm the fact that he is indeed the progenitor of 12 tribes that form the 12 tribes of the people that even to this day we call Yisrael, Israel. And so Jacob is his, uh, you know, name. Why, why do we find Cephas called Cephas and Peter? Well, you know, there's a lot of people with double names in Scripture, and a lot of it depends on what God wants to emphasize. So if you're listening to my series in Genesis on Sunday mornings, I know they've just started with Search the Scripture, and you might not catch me uh, for a year and a half or so. It's going to be a while, I think, right, Rick? And um, Oh, yeah. But if you listen carefully, when I come to Genesis 49, rather than steal all my fire today, I will explain that in more depth and detail because this subject comes up, and I will explain it to you. So listen to the message in Genesis 49. We're still a few weeks away from that, but it will come. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Many of our country's laws and ordinances are, well, actually, let me read this one first. It came in before that. A listener writes, I found that the word apparel means a loose garment to the floor, such as a dress. Does this suggest that a Christian sister should not wear pants? Well, I don't think so. Um, Any more than it would suggest that a Christian sister should not wear dresses. When Peter makes a statement in 1 Peter and he says that your husbands ought to be able to observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And then he says, let not your adornment be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Uh, in this passage, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, you know, makeup, that's of the devil and get that gold and jewelry out of your off yourself and never, you know, braid that hair. And well, if you use that logic, then you should also say that women shouldn't wear dresses. Uh, that That's not what he's saying. Um, this is a, a statement that he's saying, listen, you can, you can focus on the externals and in the process, ignore the internals and miss the most important thing that you're going to do to, li- to win your lost husband, which is the context of the exhortation. Very similarly, Paul does the same thing in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, where he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. So again, what you find here are, are the emphasis is on two words, modesty, modesty and discreetly. A woman is to be modest. Her, her clothing shouldn't be seductive. That doesn't mean she can't wear pants. Uh, you know, people say, well, uh, a woman shouldn't dress in a man's clothing. And so if a woman's wearing pants, she's uh, mimicking a man. Well, she might be. And there is certainly um, the male partner of a, me- a lesbian couple will often dress like a man. 
They'll they'll cut their hair. The male partner, the lesbian couple, they'll they'll wear a business suit, so to speak, and look like a man because they're taking that role in that homosexual relationship. Just like the opposite is true uh, with male homosexual relationships. Uh, but understand when the Bible makes that statement in Leviticus, pants hadn't been invented. They're not invented until long after the Bible is written. The principle is that of modesty. A woman should be modest and discreet. The word discreet is one that speaks that she doesn't call attention to herself. You can have modest dress but not be discreet where you come in and it's like saying everyone with a big sign over your head, look at me. And you're calling attention in an unholy, unfashionable way. So women are not to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair. This is one of the not buts of Scripture. Not with this, but with this. He's not, he's not saying when he says not this, but this, um, that you can't wear jewelry. It, it, it's a comparative term, not an exclusive term, like in John 15, where Jesus said, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. Are we slaves? Yes. It's an affirmation given hundreds of times over in the New Testament. But we're not only slaves, we are friends. And that's Peter's point. He's not saying abandon the external, um, but focus on the internal. And and both of these apostles are in total agreement. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. And so, by the way, the term apparel has nothing to do with a loose garment, restricting it only to a dress. That, that, that's, I don't know where you got that from, but that's not inherent in the Greek or anything else. But go ahead. All right. Uh, thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Okay, thank you. Um, I was listening to uh, Pastor Adrian Rogers on one of his broadcasts. He was talking about uh, the new heaven and the... Uh, uh, in it, he was talking about the walls and how on each wall um, is written the uh, the names of the I'm sorry of the uh, <clears throat> of the tribes of of Israel. There's uh, I guess twelve walls. But what he also said was <clears throat> that the uh, there's twelve apostles also written on those walls. My question was, do the apostles themselves, do they represent each tribe um, from Israel? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I don't think we can say that now one way or the other. We couldn't be dogmatic in one way or the other. Say, well, the Lord Jesus in his sovereign omniscience, and he could have certainly done this, selected 12 apostles who just happened to be from the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. That's possible. But there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that, nothing at all. So it would be purely an argument from silence. All we know in reference to the 12 apostles is that they are going to judge the 12 tribes. Now, that would be interesting to find out when we get to heaven that the Lord in his omniscience and sovereignty ended up choosing 12 apostles, one from each tribe. But we don't know that. And so it's what we would call an argument from silence, and you never want to be dogmatic where the Bible has not plainly spoken. And so I don't think Adrian Rogers was saying that, by the way, anyway. Um, I haven't heard him in a long time. I know he's gone to heaven and be with the Lord, and the Moody Broadcast Network used to play him, and I know I think BBN still plays him some, and he's on some other stations, but... um, 
Uh, unfortunately, a lot of Christian networks, sometimes when a guy dies, they take him off. Um, I'm, I'm not always in favor of that, but still, uh, I, I know he didn't teach that, but it is an interesting thought to ponder, but we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. So, Hey, that was an excellent question. It was. And it uh, ties in nicely with the next question, which somebody asked. They said, uh, many of our country's laws and ordinances are based on the Bible. Thus, the following question. In Matthew 19, 28, Christ says that the 12 apostles will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Is this the basis for our legal system using 12 jurors? Good question. I don't know. Uh, I've, I've never I've never heard that before. Uh, it could very well be because, as you know, I gave a sermon last year on the 4th of July, and I walked through a number of things in terms of how our government is structured and what it was based on in the text that they went through. Uh, I've never read anything. I probably need to ask my son Jameson on this because he's more of an expert in terms of U.S. history and its Christian uh, basis than I am. He's taught me a lot in this realm. Um, But I've never read anything that the 12 juror system was based on the model of Matthew 1928. Might be. If someone knows, let me know. I would be interested. That would be an interesting piece of American history if indeed that's where it came from, but I don't know. Good question. All right. Our next caller would like to know, does shouting in church bring you closer to God? Um, it bring you farther away because uh, you're not listening and you're wrapped up in emotionalism rather than really having ears to hear God's word. But I will say in some churches, um, people equate spirituality with emotionalism, and the Bible does not. Uh, certainly, we worship God with our whole heart, mind, and soul, but the two are not necessarily one in the same. You can be very emotional and lost. Jesus speaks of those who get even excited when they hear the word of God. They receive it with joy. They go on for a while, but in time of testing and temptation, they end up falling away. So mm. um, don't equate emotionalism with uh, conversion or spirituality. Uh, some people do. I've seen some people who are very emotional in church, and and, uh, that I, and and then I know as a pastor they're living a double life. So, you know, just be cautious. You, you worship God as you see fit, but everything is to be done in an orderly fashion. And so sometimes people are calling attention to themselves, and they're disruptive in the worship service instead of really being edifying to the body at large. Anyway, some good questions today. Yeah, and, I and guess we've got a great question for next week. I, right. I actually had this question. Right, Give you right. some time to think yeah. about it. It's the Rick Warren, John yeah, Piper question. Sure. Yeah, good question. We can talk about that next week and we'll discuss it. Hey, listen, thanks for being with us today. And uh, if you want to learn more about sharing your faith, come tomorrow night to the Wednesday night service of Community Bible Church at 630. The worship time starts at 7 o'clock, the teaching. We do have a ministry for the younger children during the same time. God bless you. Have a great day.